Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. In his decades-long career, the writer Paul Auster has turned his hand to poems, essays, plays, novels, translations, screenplays, memoirs, and now biography. Burning Boy explores the life and work of Stephen Crane, whose short time on Earth sputtered out at age 28 from tuberculosis. Like his biographer, Crane too spanned genres, poetry, novels, short stories, war reporting, and semi-fictional newspaper sketches, striking it big in 1895 with the Red Badge of Courage, which was widely celebrated at the time and is still regarded as his best work. But in Auster's estimation, the rest of Crane's output, and there is a surprising amount of it, is sorely neglected. And the pleasure of Burning Boy lies in reading one of the 19th century's finest writers alongside one of today's. Paul Auster joins us from his home in New York City to talk about the task of restoring Stephen Crane to the American canon. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Paul. It's a real pleasure. Well, I'm, I've never been on a show called Smarty Pants before, so I feel pretty privileged. <laughs> Another honor to add to your list, I guess. Yes, yes, indeed. (laughs) So you write in the book that you first encountered Stephen Crane at the age of 15 through the Red Badge of Courage and that it was, quote, an explosive, life-changing discovery. But, you know, I wouldn't have named Stephen Crane if I were to point to writers that I could see through Paul Auster's work. So, I mean, why Crane? Why now? Why a, an 800-page biography? Uh, well, the uh, answer is uh, kind of mysterious even to me, but I suppose it's easily explained. Um, I read Crane in high school. I liked it very much, and I read some of his poems as well, and I think I read The Open Boat as well as The Red Badge of Courage. Now, I was in a it was a 10th grade English class, and I remember vividly that the whole class loved the book. Um, And I think what overwhelmed most of us was the extraordinary power and originality of the language. And and that made us gasp at times. And it was one of those first encounters in which one understands the the power of, of, of pure language to convey emotion and tell stories. Well, um, after that, um, I, I kind of didn't think much about Stephen Crane. He was always there in the back of my head, and many, many years went by, and I don't think I read anything by Stephen Crane uh, at all. I just knew that he was someone I admired and was an important American writer. Well, in 2016, when I finished writing my very long novel, 4321, I remember when I finished writing the last sentence of the book, I I stood up from my chair and nearly fell on the floor. I was so tired. And I understood then that I would have to take some time off, just take a break from, from, from writing for even several months, which is something I'd never really done um, for a long, long period, but I I needed a holiday. And uh, in that holiday, I wanted to read things that I had, uh, always intended to read and hadn't and you know to catch up on a lot of films I wanted to see and just sort of indulge myself well uh, after two months or so of of doing this 
I, I came upon my old Viking portable collection of Stephen Crane's work and thought, well, there is Crane sitting on the shelf, and I haven't looked at this in decades, and maybe it's time to take another peek. And I opened the book, and I came upon a novella entitled The Monster, uh, a, a story of about 60 pages um, that I had never even heard of, let alone read. And uh, I sat down and started reading it and was knocked out, absolutely floored. Uh, I hadn't known about this piece of writing. I hadn't understood its power. I hadn't understood its importance because this is a, a, a work written one year after the uh, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson decision in the Supreme Court, which codified Jim Crow laws throughout the country and really led to the uh, second incarnation of slavery in the United States. And um, this book addresses race in, in very interesting, unusual ways. Uh, I was so taken with this that, of course, I started reading more. And I went through that entire collection which was about 500 pages long. I read everything. And uh, the more I read, the more impressed I was, not only by how good Crane was, but by how varied his writing was and how he, he had mastered uh, short stories, novellas, novels, poetry, journalism of a sort, uh, pieces called sketches, which falls somewhere between fiction and nonfiction, and then, of course, war reportage as a correspondent in two wars. It was a late-life discovery. I just, I was on a mission suddenly, and I wanted to read everything Crane had published. So I got hold of the University of Virginia 10-volume collection of his complete works, over 3,100 pages, and, um, and, and you understand, Crane died at age 28, for anyone to have published 3,100 pages in that short a time, and for a good percentage of the work, if not, uh, you know, 60 to 75, maybe even 80% of it to be of the highest quality, and the best ones to being of uh, sublime, eternal quality, was, was overwhelming. I started investigating Crane's life. Who could have produced all this? What kind of manner of young man could have done it. And, and I became uh, absorbed in reading as much as I could about Crane's life. And all this was just for the fun of it to begin with. Just I was on a little intellectual quest. And at one point, at, you know, in this, after a few months of, of, of digging, I said to myself, this is all so good. It is so interesting. It is so overlooked today that I want to write a little book about Crane. A little book, that, that's the adjective I'm emphasizing. Something under 200 pages, just to show my appreciation. And this little book will be a bridge between my last novel and the next thing I do. Well, the little book grew, and it grew, and it grew, and as you know, as they say, you know, out of little acorns do mighty oaks grow, and, and that's what happened. I was just so damned interested that I kept going, and I realized that I wanted to use this chance, now that I had taken the plunge, to reintroduce Crane to, to the world, because I think he's been forgotten. And, uh, and not just the, the famous works, the few that 
most people know, or some people know, but even the most obscure works that are actually quite extraordinary and no one ever talks about, even Crane scholars. And thus we have this Burning Boy, which is, I know, a massive book, but I, I went at it with um, great enthusiasm. And there it is. It's, it's now in your hands and make of it what you will. But I, I, I feel that it was a necessary thing to write. You don't find much Stephen Crane on the shelves either. I never read The Red Badge of Courage. I think I kind of wrote it off as another Civil War novel, something of which I've been sorely disabused after reading Burning Boy. But I did stumble upon a poem of his mm -hmm. from the Black Riders sometime in college mm -hmm. and became obsessed with that book because it seems like it could have been written yesterday. It just it just leapt off the page at me, and it was hard to square that poetry with, you know, some crusty old 19th century war correspondent. Right. Well, he, he never got to be crusty or old, I'm afraid. That's true. He, <laughs> he really was a kid. All true. He never really grew up completely. He was still mm -hmm. very much a, a creature in formation when he died. Um, and the wonder of it is that, you know, he, he, he displayed this talent so early, which is almost... Uh, there, there are very few examples in... in in world history of literature that um, someone this young uh, producing so much good work. Um, I know when we talked earlier, you wanted me to read that poem. So I just, I found it, because I, I quote it as early as page five in my book when I'm just introducing my, my subject. Let me, let me just, let me read the whole paragraph. You know, I, I talk about in this chapter how, you know, Crane has been neglected in Colleges. I mean, he certainly studied in courses on American literature. All that's reassuring, meaning all this academic work. But at the same time, I feel that Crane is now in the hands of the specialists, the lit majors and PhD candidates and tenured professors, while the invisible army of so-called general readers, that is, people who are not academics or writers themselves, the same people who still take pleasure in reading old standbys such as Melville and Whitman, are no longer reading Crane. If it had been otherwise, I never would have thought of writing this book. I come to it not as a specialist or a scholar, but as an old writer in awe of a young writer's genius. Having spent the past two years poring over every one of Crane's works, having read through every one of his published letters, having snatched up every piece of biographical information I could put my hands on, I find myself just as fascinated by Crane's frantic, contradictory life as by the work he left us. It was a weird and singular life, full of impulsive risks, an often pulverizing lack of money, and a pig-headed, intractable devotion to his calling as a writer, which flung him from one unlikely and perilous situation to the next. A controversial article written at 20 that disrupted the course of the 1892 presidential campaign, a public battle with the New York Police Department that effectively exiled him from the city in 1896, a shipwreck off the coast of Florida that led to his near drowning in 1897, a common law marriage to the proprietress of Jacksonville's most elegant body house, the Hotel de Dream, work as a correspondent during the Spanish-American War in Cuba, 
where he repeatedly stood in the line of enemy fire. And then his final years in England, where Joseph Conrad was his closest friend, and Henry James wept over his early death. And this writer, who was best known as a chronicler of war, embraced many other subjects as well, handling them all with immense skill and originality, from stories about young children and struggling bohemian artists, to first-hand accounts of New York opium dens, conditions in a Pennsylvania coal mine, and a devastating drought in Nebraska. And much like Edgar Allan Poe, often mistakenly identified as nothing more than our dark-browed purveyor of horror and mystery, when in fact he was a master humorist as well, the somber, pessimistic crane could be hilariously funny when he chose to be. And underneath the mountain of his prose, or perhaps on top of it, there are his poems which few people in or out of the academy have ever known quite what to do with. Poems so far from the traditional norms of 19th century verse-making, including the norm-breaking deviations of Whitman and Dickinson, that they scarcely seem to count as poetry at all. And yet, they stay in the mind more persistently than most other American poems I can think of. As, for example, this one, which has continued to haunt me, ever since I first read it more than five decades ago. And here is the poem you talked about. In the desert, I saw a creature, naked, bestial, who, squatting upon the ground, held his heart in his hands and ate of it. I said, is it good, friend? It is bitter, bitter, he answered. But I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. It's an amazing poem. How could you not become obsessed with that poem? <laughs> right, I know. It, it really is the anthem of all miserable people, isn't it? <laughs> it is bitter, bitter, but I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. I mean, how could a 22-year-old boy, he was 22 when he wrote this, how could he know that much about human nature? To, to write right. It. Yeah. I feel like half the time when I'm reading the excerpts in the book, when I'm reading the poems, that is the question running through my mind is how how could he have written? How could he have imagined this, given that he was basically a kid? I don't know. It's a great mystery. And, um, you know, his 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 writing talent is, of course, what drew me to him. I mean, uh, yes, he had an amazing life, a really crazy, wonderfully interesting life. But that's not why you write a biography of somebody, um, at least not a writer. You write about the writer because he's a great writer and he, he deserves mm -hmm. attention. And I think what my book does, as none of the other biographies do, is that it's also a study of his work. And again, as I said earlier, not just the most famous ones, but some of the less well-known ones as well. Too. So, For example, you know, there's a little story he wrote called An Episode of War. It's four pages long, but I, I think it's the first story that I know of ever written about war trauma. And um, it, it, he was asked by a very popular magazine of the day, uh, you know, to send them something, and he sent them this story, which they accepted and paid for, and then they had second thoughts, and they didn't publish it. I think they thought that... Um, 
the American public would be too shocked by, by what, what the effects of war really are. And they put it in their, you know, dead matter file. And it wasn't until 1916, in other words, 20 years after they got the story, right in the middle of World War I, that they found it again, you know, they pulled it out and they read it and they realized that it's, it's a story about shell shock, which was happening in the trenches of World War I, and they published it. Mm -hmm. Of course, before America entered the war, you have to remember that. Maybe they wouldn't have published it after 1917. I mean, it's so interesting because, like, both in style and subject, Crane seems to anticipate what comes after him without getting a lot of credit for doing so. I agree. And in fact, without Crane, I don't think American writing in the 20th century would have developed as it did. He is the one who opens the door. And, um, and uh, there's no question that Ernest Hemingway was deeply influenced by him. And, um, and you can see traces of Hemingway in, in some of Crane's writing. But what really cinches it is that, ironically enough, Crane knew Hemingway's mother in New York. We don't have elaborate information about how well they knew each other, but Hemingway's mother was uh, called Grace Hall. In a novel that Crane wrote after The Red Badge of Courage, is a kind of courtship novel, unfairly neglected, really, called The Third Violet, um, which I, I really found very interesting. The, the uh, female protagonist, the love object, is Grace Fanhall. Now, if that's not a direct influence, I don't know what is. And apparently, uh, uh, she bragged about having known Crane and read Crane's stories about children to her little son, Ernest, when he was a boy. Uh, the Willemville stories, which are wonderful stories of childhood some of the best I've ever read, and nobody knows about these things. Um, and Hemingway went on record two or three times in print saying that, you know, Crane is one of the two or three greatest American writers ever. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Crane's writing style, because he's sometimes called a realist. Uh, but when you hold the poems, for example, in your hand, and some of those other mythic, surreal, baffling what did I just read passages from his fiction, that label seems a little bit crooked. Well, I would say that depending on what he was doing, you know, he would he would shift his approach. Um, there are times when he's working in, in a, a minimalist way. And then there are other stories that are much more thickly written, you know, just bursting with metaphors. Um, and, um, it, you know, it all depends on, on what he's attempting to do. Uh, he can write about um, eerie, uh, uh, almost dreamlike states, uh, you know, extremely well. But he has, at the same time, and this is what makes him such a, so effective all the time on the page, is that he had an extraordinary eye for the physical world. And I think his, his body was buzzing with perceptions. And, um, and he had synesthesia as well. In other words, you know, sounds became colors for him. Um, it's something that afflicts, you know, a certain number of people. And, um, uh, and so I think he was buzzing and, and he could see things that most of us don't see. And then he had this, you know, tremendous gift of being able to transform 
the visible into vivid prose, vivid language. At the same time, um, in certain works, he goes deep inside the brain works of his characters, and he has a great talent for, you know, following the the meandering thoughts of a consciousness at work, you know, alone with itself. I think it it, it kind of foreshadows what what Joyce was doing, you know, later, um, and and all those other writers of the of the of the twentieth century who weren't named Hemingway. Um, so, so I think he opens the door, and that's that's how mm-hmm. I would put it. And this was recognized, you know, by the nineteen twenties. You know, critics were saying modern American literature began with Stephen Crane thirty years ago. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, seems to be kind of the refrain of Crane's work and his life, and honestly, of Burning Boy as well. You know, at the same time as he's writing novellas and novels. He's writing newspaper stories. He's putting out poems. You know, how do you think that came out in his style, the fact that he was always working on 10 things at once? I think he had a great ability to separate one work from the other. Um, um, he, he, he made a, a kind of devil's bargain because, you know, he was living in a very rough time for writers. And there were none of the things that, that support writers uh, today that existed then. I mean, first of all, there were no grants and there were no prizes. There were no teaching jobs. Writers did not get hired by colleges and universities to teach young people how to write. It just simply didn't exist. And if you didn't grow up with money, you were, you were thrown back into trying to scrape by. Mostly journalism. That was, that was the route for, for many of the writers in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, it, it did happen to be, you know, a golden age of journalism. Uh, in New York City alone, there were 18 daily papers, 18. Uh, you know, most of them published in multiple editions every day. On top of which, there were 19 foreign language daily papers. So we're talking about almost 40 daily papers in New York City, just, just here. In a little place like Port Jervis, where Crane spent some of his childhood, you know, it's a town of about 9,000 people. I think they had two or three papers there. So newspapers were publishing all kinds of things they don't publish today. So Crane did a lot of work during the five and a half years he lived in New York City writing about the city uh, for newspapers, particularly one that no longer exists called the New York Press. And um, these articles don't fit into the strictures of what we would call reportage today or journalism. But they're not short stories either. And, and the, form they, the, the term they used for this form was the sketch. And um, I am sure that Crane made a lot of things up in writing about these um, different scenes that he witnessed in New York City. Um, and, and yet, uh, they have the ring of the truth to them. And um, it's, it's quite, quite amazing. One of the best is called An Experiment in Misery, where Crane went out on the bum, you know, for four or five days, sleeping in flop houses and hanging out with, you know, the, the down and outs of the city, because this was during the panic of 1893, which was the biggest economic depression in the country's history. Um, 
outside of the one that happened in the 1930s. One third of New York was unemployed, and uh, you know there were bread lines everywhere, and Crane wanted to um, to explore this. Well, he actually went out with a friend of his, and they did it together. But when he wrote the piece, he got rid of the friend and just pretended it was one person alone. But nor did he write it in the first person, but as the third person. He just called himself the youth. Is that honest reporting or not? I don't know. Not really. But, um, you know, he's a complex character, as, as most people are, filled with contradictions and complications and uh, inexplicable actions that um, seem to make no sense whatsoever. And um, by living with him all this time, reading him and reading about him and reading what others had said about him, I, I slowly worked my way into him in the way I do with any character I'm writing about in one of my novels. So in a way, the more real Crane became for me, the more of a fictional character he became for me at the same time. It was very curious and very interesting. And uh, I, I enjoyed this experience a lot. And sometimes now, you know, the book is behind me and I, I, I finished writing it, oh, a year and a half ago now, the, the text of the book. I sometimes I'm walking around New York City and I, I feel that Crane is walking beside me and I have these imaginary conversations with him and say, look, look, you see, that building was there when you were here, but look at the one next to it, that's that's new. And, you know, we have these things called cars <laughs> and they're driving around and we have, you know, these, oh, look up, you know, that's what we call an airplane, you know, you never saw one of those. It's incredible. He died in 1900, you know, just before the world was about to change in, in all kinds of ways. Well, to circle back in closing to something you said at the beginning, something you wrote at the beginning of the book, of coming to it as an old writer in awe of a young writer's genius, how would you talk to Crane today beyond pointing out buildings and cars? Well, I would say, look at the newspaper here. Look what's going on. And um, it's really not very different from what was happening in your day. You know, most of your perceptions about America were right, and um, we're still living the consequences of all those uh, observations and um, illuminations you had about us. We're, we're still the same tormented, conflicted uh, people. I mean, on the flap of the book, uh, the hardcover, I, I was very keen that they used this quote from Ralph Ellison, who, by the way, put together a very nice small anthology of Crane's work back in 1960. And what Ellison wrote in the introduction, I, I'm quoting from it now, it's, it's quite wonderful. He says, Between Twain and the emergence of Faulkner, no artist of Crane's caliber looked so steadily at the wholeness of American life and discovered such far-reaching symbolic equivalents for its unceasing state of civil war. That's really quite deep. And then he says, Crane's work remains fresh today because he was a great artist. Well, yes, uh, I agree wholeheartedly. It's still fresh. It's still very much alive on the page. And it doesn't feel dated in the least to me. Um, so, so I recommend everyone read Stephen Crane. <laughs>
We have links in the show notes to Paul Auster's new book, Burning Boy, The Life and Work of Stephen Crane. If you've been inspired to start reading Stephen Crane, you can join me in reading The Red Badge of Courage for the first time, or you can dip into one of his weirder books, The Black Riders and Other Lines, which is incredible and one of my favorites. His short stories are also great, and I sampled a couple of them for this interview, including The Open Boat and The Blue Hotel. But, of course, there's a whole lot more to explore. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Thank you.